Hi, everyone. Welcome to issue five of Scout and Birdie Fireworks. I'm Anna Wolf. And I'm Jennifer Keel. And we're super excited to bring you a lot of great work from some great artists. So um, just dive on in. So when we were thinking of themes for July, we went with fireworks because everyone just thinks of the 4th of July. We had a really great 4th of July last year. Um, we went and we got a little day drunk. Ideal. <laughs> Ideal. And then we walked out to the lake and we watched the fireworks over Lake Michigan and it was really, really beautiful. Um, and I think to me, fireworks really make me think of being present in a moment with someone um, and really something that connects people um, in like a beautiful visual and audible way. So uh, yeah, 4th of July to me is like kind of my loneliest holiday, I would say. <laughs> because um, to me, I think 4th of July is the most romantic holiday. <laughs> um, I It's July, which is like my favorite month because it's my birthday month. And it's the summer and fireworks are like inherently romantic and you could be on the beach which is romantic it's everything that I think I really idolize and like the idea of like ooh, this is extreme romance all wrapped up into one holiday man the great romance of fourth of July honestly have you ever had a really romantic fourth of July no well one day <laughs> Dream big. Dream big. <laughs> so with that, dreamers, we'll take you in to the issue. Enjoy fireworks. <laughs> Starting off the issue, we have Jerome Riley. Uh, Jerome is a good friend who we know through school and just like the art scene in general and our paths just keep crossing and it's always the most delightful interaction you can imagine. And we're always like, ah, I wish we could hang out more. So what better way to hang out than and, yeah, to have him on like, Scout and Birdie? <laughs> we've got to have him on. So um, we're really thrilled to bring you Jerome's piece, Intuition. I meet you at my favorite village discount at 2 p.m. The hesitancy I feel manifests itself in tardiness. I couldn't figure out what I wanted to put on my body. I'm often afraid of giving boys the full effect of my innate thinness, so this time I settled on a baggy leather short with fishnets and a cropped tie-dye tee moment. Subtlety is key. As I approach, I can feel the disinterest coursing through my veins. This couldn't be a complete waste. At least I'd score some cute dress from the little girl section. I scold myself for being jilted upon arrival, take a moment of stillness to regain composure, and tap him on the shoulder. He's wearing a hunter green tee and cuffed blue jeans. His perfectly trimmed scruff and double ear piercings start a riot in me. My heart skips a beat. The cutie that I matched with on Tinder is finally in front of my eyes. I need to find some way to comprise the feelings of disgust that starts to arise, not for you, but for what you are destined to do, subconsciously I am what you find taboo. It isn't your fault. I am pleasantly surprised. 
I'd assumed that the boredom that you would present would be filled with the endless possibilities that reside in village discount, but there is no boredom to be found. Instead, a pair of royal blue bell-bottoms and you. A boy who minored in women's studies too, I found you. A boy who loves never been kissed as much as I do, I found you. A boy whose anxiety takes control and turns him into a stew, just like me too, I found you. We depart Village Discount and continue our journey over Thai food. We talk for hours about acapella groups, the lack of representation for people of color in the media, our love for Sufjan Stevens, the necessity of memes and gifs in textual communication, and our collection of random funny videos. It's 8pm and the restaurant is closing. I can't help but love that I am overdosing on you. What specifically did you come here to do? I am overcome with the fear of falling into the blue of the flame that is starting to ignite. I can see the sparks so clearly as if they were in plain sight. Do you see them? Do you hear them? Do you feel them? Do you feel me? We sit on a stoop in the village of Roscoe, munching on donuts you brought from your place of work. I am astounded by the day we've had. I am confused by the intensity of our connection. I am engulfed by the presence of you. I don't want it to end. I don't want this to end. I don't want us to end. But it's 11 p.m. and all good things must come to an end. We drive in your car down the narrow streets of Roscoe, blasting Empress of. As your car reaches my apartment, I feel my heart stop. You meet my fear with flame, my uncertainty with astuteness. You mutter sweet nothing, so I kiss you quick and hard, for I can see the light fading. I can feel the charred scars forming. I know that this is going to be our last goodbye. And much like a firework, you illuminate my sky and send ash plunging into my soul. Why do I have to be so intuitive? All right, next up we have Ada Chang. We met Ada um, actually also at the election monologues. We've met so many people. <laughs> so many lovely people through election monologues. <laughs> and since then, uh, we've done a couple shows with Ada, and she is a really lovely person who's always like inviting you to new things and letting you know about new opportunities. Yeah, she's a bit of a social butterfly and so like warm and welcoming. A very lovely presence to be around. She's a really good person to have in your, like, crew. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we are really excited to bring you Ada's piece, Affair. I'm sitting across from Jim. The man whom I have been seeing for a few months now. We're attracted to each other. The intensity of our attraction is so strong that I can cut the tension between us with a knife. I love him, and I'm in love with him. I'm positive that he loves me too. I mean, I know he cares about me. 
He listens when I talk about my daily problems. He smiles when I tell him great news, which is not often. He shows pain on his face when I tell him bad news. He shows concern when I'm severely depressed. He's always curious, responsive, and attentive, wanting to know everything that is happening about me and to me. He doesn't want to change me, and he doesn't judge me. He gives me his full attention when he's with me, never distracted by phone calls, visitors, or pets. Mind you, he has cats, but cats don't come around when I'm speaking to him. I always have his undivided attention, and don't tell me I'm misreading all the signs about love. This has got to be love. I'm dying to tell him that I love him today. I have been wrestling with my desire for several months now. I need him to know now. I do have my worries. What if he doesn't feel the same way about me? What if he doesn't want to see me anymore after I declare my love? Should I not say anything about my feelings so I don't destroy this good thing between us? Isn't this typical of all budding love stories? Who should be the first one to acknowledge their love so the parties involved can move the relationship to the next level? You will never know if love is mutual unless someone declares it first. Someone has to go first. He might reject me, but I'm willing to take the risk. I. Was dating Ken, my ex-boyfriend, when I met Jim. Jim was supposed to help Ken and I work on our relationship. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I forgot to tell you that Jim was my therapist. My apology. I probably should have stated right from the start. I know what you're thinking. Who isn't in love with their therapist? Everyone is. This is exactly what my professor, a trained psychoanalyst, said when I told her that I was in love with Jim. Of course, we all believe our feelings are unique. Today, I want to tell him the truth, and I want to know if he feels the same way about me. I want to ask him out for coffee, outside of our therapy session, if not now, sometime in the future. I was immediately drawn to Jim the first time I met him. I could feel the electricity shoot through my body, and that just filled the fireworks between us or inside me. I didn't realize my fascination with him was the result of my strong transference in therapy. I would go home and surf the net for his information. I wanted to know everything about him, like where he got his degree, what was his. Dissertation topic: whether he had children or whether he was married or single. I was kind of stalking him online, and by the way, I don't do that anymore. When I met him back in early two thousands, I was almost forty. Jim was bald, and twenty years my senior. That doesn't matter. First of all, I have a thing for bald men for some reason. Think Bruce Willis, 
Bruce Willis is charming and handsome, surpassing a lot of young men with a head of full hair. Second, Jim is Jewish. I seem to have strong affinity with Jewish men or Jewish people in general. With that combination, Jim was lethal. He also provided the five words I needed at the time when my relationship with Ken hit rock bottom. He started out as our couple therapy. Ken and I got to a point where we just couldn't get along anymore. We constantly fought. He complained about everything, his job, his boss, his finances, his house. He would descend into the complaining mode every time we met. It was fine the first few times, but it became too much when he would continuously complain about the same thing, yet was unwilling to do anything about it. He enjoyed explaining everything to me and would recite his encyclopedic knowledge about any topic he chose to comment on, which was every topic. In the beginning, I appreciated his wealth of knowledge and thought he was very well read. But after a while, I started to see the psychological component behind that desire to share. It masked a desperate need for validation and affirmation and acted as a compensation for his deep insecurity and lack of self-worth. I saw him trying hard to insert himself in every conversation and to establish himself as an expert even when he had no business being one. Because of that, there was a constant covert and overt competition between us. He decided that he was better at everything. And the problem is, he wasn't. He didn't need to. And I didn't ask him to be. With his fragile sense of self, I did my best to protect his ego and was cautious about the things I would say. Yet, I didn't feel he did the same for me. For example, I would never make comments to his face about how much money other men were making or how successful they were career-wise. Not that I would make comments like these to begin with. I knew these comments would hurt his feelings because these were his insecurities. But then he would keep mentioning this woman or that woman he knew saw or we both knew or saw was pretty when they were simply mediocre looking. Believe me, I might be jealous, but I'm still a fair person. I would acknowledge it if it was indeed a good looking woman. So I started to feel that he praised them just to get at me. Okay, let me confess. This feeling that I'm not pretty enough has been a deep-seated insecurity of mine since I was a kid. Ken knew that very early on in our relationship. I wonder why he couldn't have been more sensitive about my feelings. I would consider his feelings before I made any comments. So every time he said something insensitive, it made me feel unloved. Jim was a great therapist, so great to the point that I was reliving childhood trauma and experiencing psychological crisis. All the repressed feelings of pain, hurt, abandonment, and not being loved by my own parents started to surface. In one therapy session, 
I talked about how I really had to die first before I could be reborn. I have been suicidal since I was a kid. Jim sensed something troubling burning me and knew he had to intervene. He recommended that I also see an individual therapist immediately. When I suggested that I see him individually instead, he told us to find another couple therapist because it wouldn't work well for him to be both. We decided right there and then that I would start seeing him individually the following week. Ken and I could find another couple therapist. Ken didn't really have a say. My wanting to see Jim shouldn't come as a surprise. Many of us start looking outward when there's a problem in our relationship. We jump ship before we end existing one. We use the new relationship to facilitate a breakup and to help us get through the transition. Ken and I were marching to the end of our relationship. The fire was pretty much gone and no amount of fuel could revive it. I needed someone to help me make that final cut. I wanted to see Jim, both as a therapist and as a potential lover. I needed him there to help me make the breakup more tolerable. Well, I left Ken shortly after I started seeing Jim. I wasn't surprised. Neither was Jim. Seeing Jim was great for me. I was able to work on my unresolved issues while cultivating my love for him. The fact that he was my therapist didn't deter my desire to form an intimate relationship with him, even though deep down I knew he wouldn't have done anything unethical. I didn't care. I wanted to declare my love for him because I truly believed that I was special. So special that he might consider making an exception. So now I'm sitting across from him and I want him to tell me the truth. So I ask him, can we have coffee? I mean, can we have a relationship outside of this office? If not now, sometime in the future when I'm done with therapy? Jim didn't say yes. Neither did he say no. He was smart. He knew I would leave the table if he completely squashed my hope. He kept the fireworks going and my hope up long enough for me to heal and to grow until I was ready to move on. Alrighty, so we're here with Liam O'Connor. Um, and Liam is my coworker and good friend. And Liam, uh, how would you describe, uh, like, what you do? Um, I guess I'd say I'm an artist and an educator in Chicago. Uh, Cancer, Scorpio rising also probably. Yeah, like if you're on a first date, that's like Aquarius you moon. Yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, no, I would say I'm an artist and educator that I split my time between teaching high schoolers how to make drawing and sculpture and trying to figure out how I can make my own work. 
Yeah. Awesome. So Liam, tell us a little bit about your piece. Yeah. Um, this piece is like a short story that's from a longer text that I wrote in grad school, actually, um, from my master's thesis. But I really wanted it to not exist as like a PDF in the Ohio State Archives somewhere. Um, so I was really excited to get to share it. Um, it's it's a story. It's like a couple different moments from a trip that I took to Israel and to Palestine, the West Bank specifically, in the summer of 2014, um, which was like a really weird, turbulent summer. Um, right. So like the first, I should say, like I had been in grad school and like thinking about Israel and thinking about Palestine and thinking like, how do I as an American Jew and artist like deal with this really fucking heavy subject matter? And I made a lot of terrible art for like a year. And I was like, I feel like I need to go there. Um, so I got in touch with my cousin who's a rabbi. And um, she, she like got me a spot on a birthright trip, which birthright is like this complicated, strange, uh, problematic free trip for young Jews uh, where they try to make you either fall in love with Israel or fall in love with other young Jews and not ask too many questions. Um, and I had a lot of reservations about this but also it was a free trip and it would get me there so I did that and like literally the first night that we're there they're like hey we just want to take everyone aside and let you know um there's a situation which is that three teenagers three settlers have been kidnapped um nothing to worry about just you're going to hear about it in the news we want you to hear about it first and so there wasn't a whole lot about it I mean like the trip kept going and the trip ended and um there, there wasn't really much happening except that things started to escalate and Israel was launching all these raids into the West Bank searching for these teenagers. Um, eventually, I don't remember the circumstances, but at some point um, rockets are being shot back and forth and I can't say who shot the first one, but like um, you've got rockets being shot out of Gaza towards the like Israeli cities and then you have Israel responding by using like fighter jets to drop bombs and it just went from there. So that was my... Cause, oh, because I should say, the trip is 10 days long, and mm-hmm. they let you extend your trip, if you want, for up to a year. So I extended my trip for, like, six weeks. So I was there for six weeks. So then after you went and visited Palestine, right? Right. So, so yeah, afterwards, I... They don't take you to Palestine they, on birthright. Um, <laughs> on birthright. They do, but they don't tell you that they're doing it, actually. Yeah, that's they, true. they take you on Israeli-only roads which cut through the West Bank. And don't tell you if you're stopping and say, like, an illegal settlement for lunch. Because maybe your political views might prevent you from wanting to buy food there, but you didn't know where you were, so you bought some hummus at a settlement. Huh. I, that happened to me. I, I wouldn't have done it had I known. Can um, you, um, like, explain the idea of a settlement? Yeah, a so, um, basically, the, like, the land that we refer to Israel is, like, com- one part of the region, and there's Palestine, which is comprised of the West Bank and Gaza, and this whole area is incredibly complicated in terms of which borders, from which years, from which agreements. But starting around 1967 or so, um, annex, like Israel annexed the land that is now the West Bank. They took it over. And um, a lot of Israeli civilians started building settlements, which like start off often as like a trailer or something, but quickly turn into what looks like uh, suburbs. A lot of, they're basically just like, they look like Los Angeles suburbs or something, mm-hmm. like red tiled roofs and stuff. Um, and according to international law, they're illegal, but the Israeli government doesn't really make a huge distinction. And 
Um, yeah, it's like Palestinian land, but Israelis are living on it. Okay, so anyways, I extend this trip, um, and I spent some time in Tel Aviv. I spent some time in uh, Beit Zahur, which is like next to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, both of those cities being in the West Bank in Palestine, um, with a friend that I met from my study abroad program in college, actually. <laughs> my friend Julie, who's in the story. Um, I stayed there for a little bit. I went back to uh, Tel Aviv. I went to Jerusalem. I went to Ramallah for a little bit, Ramallah being also in the West Bank, um, basically hang out where people would give me a couch. Yeah, and how did you feel like as an American Jew uh, going back and forth between the two places or like experiencing Israel and Palestine? I mean, I would say that I had like two things going on at once. One is that like as an American, I had ultimate freedom of movement. I could go anywhere I wanted at any time, really. Like I have a passport that gets me through like the border like really quickly like if there's a bus I can like they make all the Palestinians get off the bus but I could stay on or whatever right like it's like this really separate treatment yeah so, because the borders are normally something that would take a really long time yeah, for a Palestinian to go through like hours at a time sometimes versus for me like they might say like what are you doing here and I'd be like seeing friends and they're like okay I don't care whatever um like like yeah but then on the other hand, um, feeling really a sense of discomfort about disclosing my Jewish identity um, to Palestinians, both because I was worried maybe that like it would be upsetting to them or that it would cause them discomfort or that they would like think weird, like that they would think differently of me. Um, and, and honestly, whenever it came up, everyone was like very chill. Like it was all in my head. Like, I remember getting to the West Bank for the first time and stayed with my... My friend wasn't there, but her roommate was there. And he's like, oh, you're Jewish. Did you see how nobody, like, bit your head off when you went across the border? That, like, we're pretty nice here? And I was like, yeah, I was really nervous. And you're very nice. He's like, yeah. Like, they want you to think that, but we're we're fine. Um, It felt like I had all these preconceived notions of how people would respond to me. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for being here with us, Liam. Thank you for being here. No um, problem. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So. All, we're all sleepy and sunburned. Yeah. <laughs> Just me. I'm probably a little bit sunburned. <laughs> so with that, please enjoy Liam's piece, Broken Blue. <laughs> At my friend's parents' house in Ashdod, his mother serves me war couscous, which is the best meal I've had in a long time. And then an alert goes off and we have 45 seconds to get to the shelter and I walk outside, casual. And he grabs my arm and shouts, run, and so I do. And the booms are much bigger here. I clench my fists much tighter now. The men and women look much more stern and the children look less like children. And a woman leans over and says something in Hebrew and his mom translates. Go back to America and tell Obama what you've seen. His mother tells me that if she had a nuclear bomb, she would drop it on Gaza. On everybody? No, the innocents can leave. Just a bomb for Hamas. Wipe it clean and start over. We go back into the kitchen and nobody has an appetite anymore, but somehow I still do, and I eat another two plates worth, in between dashes to the shelter. If there is no shelter, they say get to the second or third floor of a building, if the building is tall enough. 
The floors above should stop the rocket's trajectory, yet be above the broken glass and shrapnel flying from the street. If you're out driving, get out of the car and get as far away as possible. Get to the north side of a wall, away from windows. Definitely don't go swimming, they say. There's no iron dome over the ocean. I'm at the beach with Isaac and we're in the Mediterranean. There are no waves. We watch the intelligence planes fly back and forth all day. He checks his phone a lot. He has to be near his base in case he gets called back. We hear a boom above. No sirens, so we keep swimming. In Beit Sahur, Palestine. It's my birthday, and a well-dressed man is waving his arms in circles, serious and solemn, lecturing on Ghassan Kanafani killed by the Israelis with a car bomb. When it's over, we all walk out into the dark of the alley and think about where to go. And somebody has a cake in her purse, and she didn't know it was my birthday, but of course we can cut it up, she says, in the falafel shop, while they negotiate our taxis to a friend's house. When we get there, it's Nargila and Arak, and we sit on the patio listening to the sound of tear gas canisters in the distance. I ask how far away it is, and they look back at me calmly, exhaling through their noses, and they say that it's maybe two kilometers, but the shape of the valley carries the sound to us like it was on the other side of the street. He gives a play-by-play, translating the sounds through his deadpan affect. Boom. Gas. Boom. That's gas. Boom. Rubber bullets. Boom. Gas. Soon, he says, they will switch to live ammunition, which is quiet. He takes us up on the roof and points out where he crossed the fence into Israel. I'm a tour guide. I need to see Jerusalem, even if I am blacklisted. He laughs and another friend tells the story of his brother, so big and tall that no soldier dared to touch him. He sat in the back of an Israeli jeep, had himself arrested so that they would take him into Jerusalem. The lights of the settlement, Gilo, twinkle on the hill and I hate how beautiful it all looks. We leave the party at the end of the night and Julie puts me in the back of a taxi when we hear sirens from Jerusalem. She's going to take pictures of the clashes and I'm going to go sit in her apartment and worry. I hear a rocket explode overhead, but I don't realize it until I check the news later. In South Tel Aviv at a party, I order a beer from the bar on the roof when another red alert goes off, third for the night, and I gesture to her. Please, hurry, I want something to drink down in the shelter, but what I mean is that I want something to hold on to. I get coffee with a woman I met on Tinder, an American. We walk in her neighborhood when an alert goes off, and I say, let's go inside, somewhere. So we go into a hardware store. The clerk looks up and speaks in Hebrew. She translates. It's no safer in here than out there. This building is old. It feels good to have a roof above you, I say. After the boom, we go outside. Everybody is taking pictures of the small drop of a cloud on blue sky. So if you're following along on the digital issue, next up is Abigail Phelps with a collection of portraits. Yeah, so Abigail has created this collection of portraits inspired by 
some of the men in her life who have sparked fireworks. There's the theme. There's the theme in her life. So be sure to check it out. It's called Small Stokes, a collection of sketches. And next up in the podcast is Michael Lavalley. We know you're all super excited for the next installment of Scandalous Tales. So please enjoy the next installment of When I Woke Up in Putney, a European sexcapade series. Prague. If you're listening to any of the stories I'm telling you, please take away one thing. Go to Prague. That city is probably the most majestic place in the world, with everything a cheap little wanderlust American could possibly ask for. Every street is as wide as a Toyota Corolla and made of actual cobblestones. The food is usually some kind of delectable tender meat with a perfectly cooked potato side, all covered in gravy, and it's the most food coma-inducing meal you've ever had. Even though you couldn't even pronounce the name, but it's fine because everything there is going to be good anyway. There's the world's largest castle, a monastery with beer made from monks, a church made of bones, and the city's currency equates to $0.043, which means everything is cheap as fuck. Like, you would probably be getting ripped off if you were paying more than $2 for a high-quality draft beer. It's everything you want, need, and get. When Elisa, Olivia, and I get to Prague on June 22nd, we are surprised by how different yet cliché the culture is. Our train drops us off near the outskirts of the downtown area where there are not as many tourists, but instead are older fat men in suits, fit younger men also in suits, blonde bombshell moms with big tits wearing colored track suits, dogs basically everywhere, mostly pit bulls and small gappy dogs, and everyone was white. You'd have thought we landed in Russia. We trudge our heavy-ass backpacks 30 minutes along the downtown outskirts to our Airbnb to meet our host, who was, surprise, a tall, white Czech woman with a thick accent that sounded something Russian. She was actually an absolute sweetheart. She showed us her place, gave us a map of the city, gave us restaurant recommendations and places to avoid. She leaves, we settle in, then go out into the city to meet Shannon, who took a different train to Prague and was staying at a hostel in the inner city. We meet her at Madhouse Hostel, When we walk in, Shannon tells us about a pub crawl the hostel is throwing that night. We all know how the last pub crawl went for me in Amsterdam, but we say yes. We grab some dinner, head back to the hostel, and join a crowd of about 25 people waiting outside in the alleyway, waiting to get fucked. Someone leads us on a short walk to a bowling alley to surprise us with the first stop of the pub crawl. Drunk bowling. The game is simple. At the beginning of the game, everyone has their own drink. If you bowl a strike, you tell someone to drink their entire drink. If you bowl a spare, you tell someone to drink half their drink. If you bowl a gutter ball, you buy a round of shots for the team. The goal is to die. So after one game, everyone is shit-faced and we go to our next location, which was just a random bar that played a lot of 90s jams. Shane and Elisa and Olivia were having the time of their lives while I spent the night trying to figure out why their vodka tonics were like neon blue. I never really figured out why. That's where the night ends, though. Basically, Shannon gets hit on a lot at the bar, and Olivia, Elisa, and I get tired and eventually just head back to the Airbnb. The next day, we wake up early, get some breakfast at a cute little grocery by our apartment, and head to the inner city to meet up with Shannon, who we find with a random Australian man with floppy curly yellow hair and a dad bod. Apparently, they met last night at the bar, and he was staying at the same hostel. 
We all take a free city walking tour to learn more about Prague's history, then hike up probably the steepest hill in the world to the Prague Castle, which is the largest castle in the world by square footage. It was absolutely gorgeous. Nothing really that spectacular, but it felt very much like an episode of Game of Thrones. After the castle, we go to a monastery that brews its own beer, like literally a community of monks that also has a brewery. We drink some blueberry beer, which the monastery is known for, and the rando Australian was so hype about. It was fine. While at the monastery, though, I find a cute little Italian man on Grinder named Philippe. From his picture, he looks pretty tall, buff, and a chiseled face. Looks good to me. He tells me he wants to take me on a special date to Petrin Park, which is on the same hill as the castle, but on the other side of the city. He says you can see all of Prague from atop that park. It's so magical. <laughs> we'll see. After the monastery, we walk through the park that Italian man wants to take me to later tonight. The Aussie guy with us talks about how the park is known for being called the Kissing Park because one day out of every year, all the people from Prague go to the park and make out with their partners and kiss random people or something like that. So I don't really know how much I believe this story, but now I see why Italian man wants to take me here. We walk down the hill through Petrin Park to an island in the middle of the Vidlava River, which splits the city down the middle. Shannon and Aussie Man leave, and Olivia, Elisa, and I rent a paddle boat and cruise around the river as the sun sets behind the Prague Castle. That moment is probably in my top five favorites of my trip. After the paddle boat cruise, we part ways, and I head over to the western side of the city to meet Philippe. I meet up with him at a famous building called the Dancing House by contemporary architect Frank Gehry. The building is supposed to represent Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers for their famously smooth technique and effortless connection. It was about 9 p.m. as I was standing under the entrance of the building, and I had a feeling this night was not going to turn out like how I wanted it to. Philippe comes around the corner. He looks at me confused like I wasn't in the right place and he was helping out someone lost. Michael? He says with his hand out for a shake. Oh, yeah. Hey. You look different than I pictured. I, I thought you'd be taller, I say with an awkward chuckle. Shit, I think that was offensive. Shit, I shouldn't have said that. But also, like, he's not that cute. Shit, play it cool, Michael. Make it work. He's Italian. He was about 5'7", a boldly angular face, dark disheveled short hair, pretty large nose. A very large nose. A small build with an average toned shape. The kind of toned where if I took his shirt off, it would meet my expectations but not be overly wowed by his body. Except he's got this weird diaphragm bump like he's always holding his breath. Hmm. Well, at least he has a nice ass. We casually stroll toward Petrin Park, which is just back over the river toward the large hill. We talk about our lives, mostly family-related. He seems shy, like super timid in, in a rapey way. I feel like I want to go already. I want to just stop and say, no, this isn't going to work, sorry. But I keep going, giving it a chance. We make our way through zigzag paths up a big hill in the park. Basically, we're hiking on a first date. At the top of the hill is a rose garden, which probably would have looked incredible and romantic if it wasn't pitch black and almost midnight. Oh, look, there's a rat eating out of a Dorito bag. Look at that. He takes my hand and leads me under wooden arches laced with roses. We stop at the end where there is a railing overlooking all of Prague on the edge of a cliff. The moon is full, dimly adding to the yellow hue of the city's street lamps that make it glow from atop the hill. 
Some faint fireworks explode purple, green, and red in the distance. A quiet popping ambience as Philippe touches my hand, looks at me with his big nose, and kisses my lips. We make out along the railing with Prague and the moon watching us. It gets more and more aggressive with every kiss. He grabs my ass and picks me up, pushing my lower back against the poles, holding my face, spiting my lips, both of us leaning over the railing and the cliff and the prog, and then he stops, pulls back, looks at me, smiles, goes back in for seconds. I pull back, take a deep breath. Literally, I actually just take a moment to get some air. I relax into his hold and look up at the stars. I always seem to find Orion. We should go back to your place, I say, smiling at him. He pauses before he speaks a lot. Um, I don't know. Oh, we don't have to. Oh my God, we totally don't have to. I just like really like you and this is fun and I just want to keep it going. I say, trying to catch myself if I made a wrong move. I don't even like him that much. I really don't even care about the sex. Hmm, there's Orion again. No, no, it's not that. Okay, well, what is it? I ask him. I don't know. It's just... He pauses again, trying to find the words. What? What is it? It's just... I can't, he says. Okay, why, though? Like, if you have something to say, just say it. Do you have, like, an STD or something? Are you not into me? Are you afraid to have sex? Like, no, 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 I just... <sighs> oh my god, what is wrong? Okay, okay, so like... Do you know when something feels... so right... that you think it's wrong? He says to me with a crooked smile. Um... Maybe? I'm not really sure I'm following. Like... I like you, and this feels really good, but it's dangerous. So you don't want to fuck me because you think I'm too attractive? I ask him. I feel like that's a compliment, like I'd be okay with that. No, no, like I don't want to have sex with you because I, I like you too much. Pause. Wait. So you don't want to fuck me because you think you like me too much and you don't want to get attached? Yeah. Yeah, he says, kind of embarrassed. <sighs> Jesus, this is ridiculous. Okay, I guess I understand, I say. I look up at the stars again, looking for something other than Orion to help me figure out what to do next. It takes me so much longer to find the Big Dipper. Oh, but I think that might be the North Star. I don't know, but it's bright enough, so just fucking take me home, please. But you can sleep with me, he says. Oh, well... <laughs> Thank God I have a place to sleep, I guess. Whatever. I don't even know why I'm still with him. At this point, I'm so numb to the fuckery of his mental path on why we shouldn't have sex that a place to sleep this late is good enough for me to keep him around. We hold hands and walk back through the rose garden, down the hill, and back to his apartment, which is near our meeting spot at the dancing house. He takes me up to his place, which is basically you walk into a closet in the kitchen all in one. He has a sink and a microwave. Attached is a bedroom with white sheets and a side table. Bathroom also attached. We make out as we rip our clothes off, slowly making our way to his bed. Once we get to the underwear, he stops. Again. I think I'm a little tired now, he says, clearly trying to avoid almost sex. I'm honestly over it at this point. 
I crawl over his boner and curl up facing the window. His skinny stomach comes behind me, pressing into my back, arm on my hip, and we fall asleep. That big-ass nose can fucking snore. The next morning, I take a shower and put my clothes on as he watches me. He refuses to take a shower until I leave, probably because he thinks I might steal something. Fucking awkward. I want to get out of there, ASAP. I woke up thinking about a cat cafe randomly and find one nearby. I kiss him goodbye, say it was nice meeting him. It wasn't. I get some breakfast at a little cafe down the street. I write in my journal as I eat two scrambled eggs with ham and cheese, a bowl of melons and blueberries, and two slices of toast with grape jam. This breakfast is probably better than my whole night. After breakfast, I stop into the cat cafe and have a cup of coffee with cookies as I play with the only four cats that are there. They were all kind of dicks and didn't like to be touched, so that was a bust. After a couple hours, I give up trying to be friends with the cats and make my way through Prague with the early morning sun lighting up the buildings and gardens around me. I make my way back to the Airbnb to find Elisa and Olivia still sleeping. I crawl in bed with them and shut my eyes. Tomorrow will be better. Hey Jen, guess who's up next? It's me. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> My beautiful best friend Jennifer Keel is up next. So please enjoy her piece, Schadenfreude. It's nearly 12 a.m. and I am perched on the arm of his couch eating a bowl of Quaker oatmeal squares with the really good organic 1% milk that he gets from Costco as he slouches in a large green armchair across from me. We're exchanging favorites. Steve Martin, George Carlin, The Prisoner, Black Adder, The Shins, Radiohead. I'm Buddhist and he's a nihilist and everything works in the strangest way. Every once in a while, his eyes flick down to my lips and quickly back up to my eyes, and my face is rushed with warmth. He wants to kiss me. In between bites, I tell him about my favorite song. Side note, in my opinion, all the best songs are sex. There's lots of foreplay. They tease you. They make you wait, caressing your ears and nibbling at your narcissism. They build and build, nudging you closer and closer to that one lyric. That one that you feel in your bones. The climax. And when it finally comes, shivers run down your spine and reverberate in your reverie. My favorite song is Angelus by Elliot Smith. It's a gentle lover, the kind that looks directly in your eyes with just the right amount of intensity. He stands up and grabs his two large Hewlett-Packard laptop and sits down on the couch. I slide off of my perch, put down my bowl, and scoot in next to him. I lean over, type Elliot Smith, colon, Angelus, double-click. His eyes move around the corners of the room as he listens intently to the lyrics floating into his ears on a wave devised of the gentle pluckings of a finger-picked acoustic guitar. He turns to me. The corners of his mouth move upward and form a smile. And I smile back, raising my right shoulder and biting the left corner of my bottom lip. I feel my eyes filling with liquid and a tear rolls down my left cheek. He smudges it away with his thumb and breathes deeply and loudly, encouraging me to do the same. 
I look into his glistening gray eyes and I just can't help it. It's all so exhausting holding it together and I can't do it anymore. I kiss him lightly at first, then pull away to look in his eyes, check in. His eyes shift back and forth between my left and right eye, then down to my lips and back up to my eyes. And I kiss him again and he kisses me and I'm sitting on his lap, my hands running through his hair as his wrap around my waist, and I can feel his rapid heartbeat matching mine, thumping beneath his chest. We pull away, take a breath. Our foreheads rest against each other and our eyelashes graze as I go to look in his eyes. And we start to laugh, because it's just so absurd. We buried our friend today. We're disheveled versions of the structured black silhouettes we were hours ago, standing in the mist of the morning rain. His suit jacket is strewn upon a chair. My cardigan lies in a bunch by the fireplace, our shiny black shoes scattered on the floor. In my mind, I fill with what-ifs that will never be. And all I can do is laugh, because what else is there really? And this, this is like exhaling. And I'm home. I'm safe. I don't know if any of it matters at all, but here I am being hurled through space on a rock I deem important because of my occupation of it, thinking my ideas are important because I write them down on a flattened out piece of a tree. The arrogance of it all. Of course it's important. How could it not be? I've written it on the remains of another organism, and how could my journey not matter? As I traipse about on the carcass of another creature, reassured by the words of a man who stabbed himself in the chest with a knife one afternoon. We're all just dressing up death, constantly, trying to make it more beautiful, trying to give it meaning. It's a show of dominance. Dominance breeds comfort and control is everything. Sex on the graveyard of existence. And the truth of it all is that life goes on. I go on without the people I love. Don't get me wrong, it hurts. Of course it hurts. It's a provisional poison that pollutes my sanity in its passing. Detrimentally debilitating, yes, but it always does pass. Life goes on. But even so, I can't shake the image of tense backs and tired faces lighting candles as I sit in the back of the hospital chapel, comforted each time I hear the familiar strike of a match and faintly smell the burning flesh of a tree. And it feels wrong. And it feels right. And it hurts so nicely. All right, next up we have Bonnie Fan. Bonnie, fantastic. <laughs> um, Bonnie is a friend of mine who I met through another friend. Um, but Bonnie is such a supportive person to have in your life, and she's really wonderful. She's a very lovely person to be around. Um, and this 
piece is actually from a zine. Um, so be sure to check out, there's lots of images and other things that go along with this piece on our website in the digital issue. So be sure to check that out. And they really enhance the experience. So, so give it a look. Yeah. And enjoy Mother City. Red, white, blue, trash. In the rooster body of China, my parents' hometown sits right below the neck, above the belly. The journey swallows you. You used to cross Shanghai to Qidong on a bus with seats sponged up in old cigarette smoke, rolling eventually onto the loading dock of a giant ferry. A big puff, the doors crack open, then you were free to wander, ducking around truck drivers, flicking sunflower shells and spittle from their cabs stopping your breath every time you caught a whiff of exhaust. Root soil from thousands of trees yanked from the riverside stirred permanently into the Yangtze River, huge swirls of mud yellow off the edge of the boat. This time, Xiaogonggong collects our family and luggage in the back of a boxcar van from Shanghai Pudong International Airport. Our parents have filled the six suitcases with vitamin bottles, beef jerky, down jackets and New Balance shoes to be replaced with a full shopping cart of salty sweet treats and Ziploc gallon bags doubled over raw jellyfish in salt water on our way out. None of us know who the driver is. Great uncle hired this man, says mom. Then, he's a relative we don't know. Or, his friend maybe, hmm. They yell loudly to each other, or rather talk in a Chinese conversational pitch while we receive rustling pink bags from Xiaobua, filled with kumquats, apples, bananas, and hard-boiled eggs. I'm half asleep when we drive smoothly across a massive bridge that was completed in 2011, the year I last visited. Voice 55, Fantasy 1. We wake up pulling in backwards down the side street where my grandparents live. A ding in my head, recognizing the fruit stand across the corner stacked with bright plastic tubs. The workers surplus stand next door, dangling rubber boots and camouflage jackets like mobiles from the ceiling. The city repeats, a tessellation from layered memories of childhood visits, dreamlike. A small bridge comes into view and I have a vision of a steaming sweet potato unwrapped from foil, once bought from a passing street cart in the middle of winter. I run up the stairs of a shuttered Korean market and jump into a photograph of myself at age four or five, wearing a white and blue patterned jumpsuit, sitting on a matching spinning spaceship ride of a small theme park. The park's flying swings, octopus teacup ride, and cartoon train set. It was hard to tell how long they had been sitting and rusting, waiting. P Ambassador. Every visit to the city is a sci-fi trip. The parallel world where my parents stay in China. It's the nightmare fantasy of every American-born Chinese kid. Getting sent to the other end of the world, dragged by one ear, dropped into the hole you dug in the Shepherdson Elementary School sandbox through the Earth's core. China. Finish your dinner. Stop crying. No one in my extended family ever joined my parents in the United States. A handful few have drifted to Shanghai, Nanjing. Most everyone remains in Qidong. This is the city of our alternate lives. 
Chidon children running along the streets, exchanging high notes with the shopkeepers, slipping on fish heads in open-air markets, ducking through Reming Park where Chinese arhu mixes with the throbbing pop when grandmothers come swaying in formation across from ballroom dancers. Transplant us from Trout Corps Knowledge to Zui Middle School, where my parents sent us to exchange for a summer. Red scarves, synchronized exercises I watched from above with the kid nursing a fake belly ache. I peed my pants on that playground when the fifth graders brought out water balloons. I mentioned this theory to my brother. Yeah, I guess it's scary. I wouldn't have been born. My visions left out the one-child policy. Parents doting on a generation of little emperors and ghost brothers. Voice 55, Fantasy 2 Dad came to the States on fellowship to the University of Colorado Boulder. In his physics PhD thesis, measurements of gluon spin-sensitive quantities at the Z-Null residence star, he thanks my mom for her support, encouragement, and home cooking, and my little daughter Bonnie, who always makes me feel happy and relaxed. I was one year old and could balance on the palm of his hand. From what I can understand of it, my dad's physics research involved work with particle accelerators, predecessor work to the discovery of the so-called God particle using the Large Hadron Collider. Researchers have since moved on to use the Large Hadron Collider to create many black holes, which would prove the existence of alternate universes. Don't take my word for it. Everything I know about quantum physics and interstellar travel can be played on my childhood Yamaha PSR-73 electric keyboard in Voice 55 Fantasy 1. Instead, pop in a Star Trek Laserdisc. Linger your eyes on the vaguely pornographic episode titles of the first season. Episode 1, The Man Trap. Episode 2, Charlie X. Episode 3, Where No Man Has Gone Before. Episode 4, The Naked Time. Pick episode 3, Where No Man Has Gone Before. Watch the crew fly to the edge of the galaxy, towards a floating magenta cotton candy mass. The ship enters the magenta and the ship's monitors fill with pink, fleshy, pulsating blobs. Basically, an ultrasound. Red, white, blue trash, too. Fidgeting at the table, the puzzles in front of the TV abandoned. She slaps the soup spoon away, guides her wrist towards the egg dumplings that she does not want to eat. B, can you use your words? What's wrong? Yeah, yeah, squeezed over at the edge of the table, Nainai's eyes lidded. A newly hired living helper perches in the kitchen, apron sleeves pushed up. My grandma has constantly reassured us that she feels better than ever. She takes daily walks to the market, even in the rain. Rest easy. Right ear a deafness. Our communication comes down to peas and wood ear mushroom spooned into a tiny bowl for my brother to reach to the braised ribbon fish balanced closer for my dad. Bee's eyes widen, a searching, stricken look. Her mouth curves into a horseshoe, upper lip protruding. Please cry, please. Maybe stressed from the jet lag, the country, ignored at the dinner table. She can't tell us. My relatives think that my sister cannot understand Mandarin. B is the smiling center of the table, laughing, taking photos on mom's iPhone. How would my parents have translated global developmental delay? 
Dad praises B the next morning for not making a scene in front of Grandpa and Grandma. Maybe most people remember this, but I forget that my parents are also children. Voice 33, SY Led. The drive to Mom's side of the family takes us out of the city into Huilong Zone, the rural equivalent of the suburbs. The buildings are made of concrete and lumpy bricks, the floors packed dirt. In my scavenged understanding of my parents' past, they both grew up this way, swimming in small creeks, flying dragonflies like kites, catching bullfrogs between vegetable patches. When I do the comparison, it's clear that 90% of this image was taken from Taiwanese pop sensation Jay Chow's song, Dao Xiang, Fragrant Rice. Voice 33, SY Led 2. Gungung Bua's old home has been leisurely curated in their memory, or somebody's memory. Portraits up high by the front of the entrance, a room full of umbrellas, a jar full of nail clippers, glass shells of old photos crushed and folded. The yard remains the same, a kumquat tree squatting below the garden on an embankment, one bright orange dot floating. Chickens on the opposite bank appear to orbit this kumquat sun. The room overflows with wrinkles, black and yellow teeth flashing towards us. Sisters of aunts, of husbands, of brothers, of cousins, a room full of strangers, blood. Then faces we do recognize, like wax statues, completely unchanged. My brother and I are stranded to our own corner of the table. Each time I open my mouth to speak to the woman on our left, I remember I do not know what to call her. Auntie? Senior Grandma? Second Auntie? Without knowing how to chunghu, I can't speak to her. We flip through a photo album mom put together. It's the anniversary of grandpa's death. Feeding goats. Goats. Long stalks of relight grass yanked from my hand, smacked my back with a pungent green smell. I charged down the roughly paved path, a rock-studded black mass. Slow down, grandma calls, ignored. Faster, 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 flat into my face. Knees bleeding, crying, carried back into the house. No goats fed. I still have that scar. I need to walk and take my sister outside. Raw shrimp swimming in sauce, clovers in soup, fish bones excavated to the spine. The more muffled the conversation I'm spooling from the lazy Susans, the more I understand of it. I lose the words and find the intonation, musical and cacophonous. To understand my relatives, I need only to be far away from them. Their voices fade completely by the time we find the goat path, paved now in cool, smooth asphalt. Red, white, blue, trash, three. Mom keeps pointing out to us square fields of yellow flowers, washed out by the rain. The yellow flowers are used for vegetable oil and ends up on the dinner table most days of the week we visit. I want to ask her if she misses these fields, but I forgot how to say miss in Chinese. Maybe I'm shocked she cares to find them beautiful. Watching him sit two rows down and away from us, I see how dad could have been happier without a family. Maybe my dad stays in China, a bachelor contributing to particle physics, ripping apart the universe with a small black hole, only to unwrap like a snow globe, the five of us now as we sit on damp stadium benches. The Shed Aquarium is bringing dogs out, not otters, not even swimming dogs, just normal panting dogs that do tricks along the outer ring of the pool. These dogs have been trained with only 
positive reinforcement. I swell with resentment and envy. Bandanas flap on their necks, their butts sent to tiny podiums. Mom laughs. And in America, they have names for dogs. We sit with my grandpa's sister-in-law, who I've never met before today. Apple peel spools in her trash can, uncrumpled oranges between our fingers. Her husband returns with a tiny dog, the wriggling type. She tells us his name. Adorable. Voice 33, SY Lead 3. Celebrating the first hundred days of my cousin JJ's baby. I cooed at the stroller at lunch two days ago, pretending I'd known all along she was married with a baby boy. The baby is round-eyed and plump. The baby's father shares the same fat around the cheeks and neck. My other cousin L.Y. shows up here too with her fiancé. A wedding is planned for December this year. In photos, I stand half the height of these two girls, wearing pigtails and a squinting smile. Cousin L.Y., mom's side, age 28. Cousin L.Y. is the reason mom constantly tells me that time is running out because the men are disappearing. Cousin L.Y. is having a very hard time. Her parents are worried. Mom, all of China's men marry downward socioeconomically, leaving a large pool of rural men and highly educated women who don't marry each other. Mom, I'm not going to be marrying a man. Mom, men are very fragile, emotionally combustible. Maybe you've heard they're disappearing. That's why. Nothing we can do. Elwise's hair was always cropped short in the butch cut, mysteriously popular for Chinese women. She called my grandma Qing Mu. The 99 roses and expensive necklace her long-awaited fiancé sent her eclipsed any mention of her career at a shipping company. I carefully tell her mom that I do not have any significant friends. Cousin JJ, age 29? Cousin JJ is not actually my cousin, but mom's much younger cousin. JJ lived in Shanghai with Xiaogonggong Xiaobua, who picked us up from the airport. She must live with her husband, who still reminds me of Buddha, except constantly wearing a surgical mask. Xiaogonggong comes and makes a toast, inviting himself to my impending wedding in America. Voice 33, SY Lead 4. I watch when my mother leans into the stroller to pick up the hundred-day-old, noticing that she has him in her arms like a breakfast tray his soft head lolling on the edge of her forearm instead of in the crook of her elbow. I try to remember the last time my sister, now in middle school, was small enough to cradle. Did my parents know that America would take their children from them? Red, white, blue trash form. Our family touches to the ends of chopsticks, unwanted gifts, or silent favors begging interpretation. They embrace only in wrestling matches, a flick of a bright red hongbao money packet passed back and forth, hands circling like basketball players. The day we leave, we keep weaving around a noisy iron claw, picking up a smashed up trash house. Blue, red, white, porcelain shards, generating dust as we shove our suitcases in the van. My sister hugs Ye Ye Nai Nai, as does my brother. I pat my grandma on the back. My parents wave. When we get to the main road, Mom twists in her seat. We forgot to look back as we drove away. Their grandparents were probably watching us as we left.
Okay, our last piece of the issue comes from Hadrian Baum, a.k.a. Hal. Hal is our good friend who was in our first ever solo performance class that we met each other in. Um, and I remember Hal did a piece called Plungerhead, which is something that we both think about all the time still, because it was just the most delightful piece of art ever. So It was beautiful. It was lovely. Um, so, with that, <laughs> enjoy his piece, Fireworks. Fireworks 1. My friend Jay overdosed on Oxycontin, died for three minutes, went to rehab, and came back better than ever. It was a shock to see him for the first time after rehab. We went to go see the new David Lynch documentary at the Music Box, and then we sat on a bench outside of Jewel eating sugar cookies. He brushed crumbs from his beard and talked about his month in detox like it was an important vacation. He didn't seem like a person who had just died a little over a month ago. He seemed to be doing great. I told him that, and he shrugged and said, Yeah, nothing can kill me, which would usually be a pretty big red flag, but in this instance, it was kind of hard to argue with him. Jay's a solid guy, like the Rock of Gibraltar. He's got huge, meaty hands. He spends his weekends standing on train tracks. The trains knock him down, but he always gets back up again, dusts himself off, and walks away, shaking his head. We sat on the bench outside of Jewel, eating sugar cookies. I had just gotten back from an extended trip myself. Not rehab, but also kind of. I used to shave my head just to feel like a different person, or I would get home from work, get a plate out of the cabinet, walk onto my back porch, and drop the plate onto the concrete. Or I would, <clears throat> I would, um, well anyway, nothing a few stars can't fix, and some trees, a mountain or two, go live in a snow globe for a while and see what it does for you. Add in a nasty poem from an ex-girlfriend and a talk about golden arrows with a friend in a sauna, barefoot through the snow, sleep on a couch, sleep in a closet, don't shower, don't shave, grow a beard, get mistaken for homeless in the Seattle Public Library, go to church every night, interview Pastor Frank, interview Pastor Adam, and oh look, there she is, shivering like a pine tree in the moonlight, but don't talk about her because she made you promise not to. Look at them instead. Watch them look at trees and sing about trees and go skinny dipping in the freezing ocean, gangly bodies pink and dripping, waterfall in the park, goose eggs, smoked salmon, Bellingham, Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, a quarry, a question, a comic book, Greyhound to Megabus to Amtrak to home. One month in the woods and one month on the road and you come back to Chicago feeling like a brand new person, resurrected, like it was me who died and came back. Before he got sober and before I got star-blasted in the wilderness, Jay and I were in a punk band called the Sticky Sick Kids. I wrote all the songs. Songs like Nobody Likes Me and Don't Make Me Wear a Condom and I Will Disappear If You Don't Look At Me. I Will Disappear If You Don't Look At Me were the only lyrics of that song, repeated over and over again. It started with just a slow, creepy bass line and some snapping while I repeated that line over and over again as it grew bigger and louder until it exploded into a huge noise rock cacophony during which I would screech at the top of my lungs, tear my clothes off, roll around on the floor, jump into the audience, and then eat a raw onion. Trying to dance, sing, and eat an onion at the same time was nauseating. It coated the ground with mushy onion foam and filled the air with acid. After our first show, a girl came up to me and she told me that she had to leave the room during our set because it smelled so bad, and I said, wow, that's exactly what I was going for. 
In theory, these songs were exaggerated expressions of anxiety and self-loathing meant to induce a state of indulgent catharsis, a safe space to perform my own self-destructive tendencies without making people too sad. But in practice, usually I would get off stage with a rotten nectarine in my stomach and the need to get completely wasted. I don't know how Iggy Pop did it. Just kidding. It was heroin. He was on heroin. That's how he did it. During the Sticky Sick Kids' very last show, I had taken my shirt off for I Will Disappear, and while the guitar player was retuning her guitar between songs, we were attempting some sarcastic banter with the audience, and the bass player pointed at the ladder of pink and white lines on my naked arm and said, on mic, amplified to the crowded bar, hey, what happened to your shoulder? And I said, let's not talk about that on stage, and then we blasted right into Sometimes I Cut Myself to finish the set. After we got off stage, I thought to myself, hmm, maybe this isn't a good idea. A week later, Jay went on a long road trip during which he blacked out in New Orleans and cracked his head on a bar stool, ruined R's rug by smelling so bad, and then was rejected at the Canadian border for being too sober. Too sober? He was so shaky that the border guard thought he must be drunk, but in truth, he was acting strangely because he hadn't had a drink in so long that he was going through withdrawals. He wasn't drunk, he was too sober. He was trying to convince them of this when he finally got a text message back from his crack dealer. The border guard saw the text and sent him back to Seattle. While he was off doing that, I was in Chicago avoiding therapy and getting ready for my own trip to Washington. As Jay was coming back, I was leaving. When I got to Seattle, I stayed in the same closet that he had, and R told me all about how he had showed up with stitches in his head and stank up her rug so bad that she had to throw it out. And while I was in the snow globe in the mountains, looking at stars and figuring it all out, Jay was in Chicago getting hit by one last train, exploding into a thousand little lights. One month later, we were both alive and well, sitting on a bench outside of Jewel, eating sugar cookies. Two very lucky boys. You look great, I said. Yeah, he said. Nothing can kill me. I guess not, I said. And then we looked at each other, serious for one moment, just to silently acknowledge that we both knew it wasn't true. Fireworks 2. A happy explosion. A bomb, but good. Reckless summertime fun. Cut your jeans into shorts, buy a bottle of gin, and meet me on the beach. We'll fall asleep in the sand and we won't even drown because Lake Michigan doesn't have a tide to drag us out. And when you get that bug in your head that says if I don't have sex with someone or do drugs tonight then I'm going to be disappointed, you can always suck my dick or else I'll suck yours. And L wants to know if I want to go split seas on a hooker, but I'd rather fuck this guy. I'd rather go skinny dipping in the shed aquarium. I'd rather dedicate my life to a heroin addiction. I'd rather run towards that dark figure in the distance until I step on a thorn when I was 12 years old at my friend Evan's sleepover party and I have to stop alone in the darkness, whimpering like a wounded coyote, and pull it out of my foot before limping back to the circle of tents in Evan's yard only to find that everyone is already sitting around the fire pit playing Never Have I Ever and the snipe hunt has been over for a full 30 minutes. They all look up at once, 12-year-old faces lit from below by the fire, and Evan asks, Where were you? In Chicago, we don't have stars, but we do have guns, so we make our own stars out of gunpowder, and when they go off at Navy Pier, you look down first to make sure you haven't been shot, and then you look up and it's super pretty all of a sudden. All right, we've made it to the end of issue five. Yay! Thank you so much for tuning in and listening with us. 
Remember that you can go to our website, scoutandbirdie.com, and check out the digital issue. Um, and be sure to check out Small Stokes, a collection of sketches by Abigail Phelps, and the rest of Bonnie fanzine, Mother City. If you liked what you just heard, make sure to rate us, subscribe, write a review. Do all that fun stuff. Um, and if you want to keep up with us, you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or Twitter. So we're going to play you out with a song from the Sticky Sick Kids, lead singer, our good friend, Hadrian Balm. Enjoy the song, Nobody Likes Me. We'll see you next time with our August issue, Sunburnt. Thanks for listening. I'm Anna Wolf. And I'm Jennifer Keel. Okay, take it away, Sticky Sick Kids. <laughs>